Father in heaven, we are thankful for the worship and song, for these songs about our redemption through the blood of Christ, through even the fact that we can rely upon you as our vision and our Lord, and that there is nothing really that matters to us except who you are and what you've done. And I pray, Lord, that you would focus our thoughts on you and on your truth and on your love and on your, on your grace, on your holiness today. And as, as, we, as we think on you and as we meditate on who you are, we know that you would also call us to examine ourselves in the light of your word that reveals your perfect character, but it also reveals our nature as sinners and our nature as saints. And we ask, Lord, that each one here uh, would receive truth from your word. Lord, that you'd give the miracle of being able to articulate your word in, in such a way that it represents who you are, that you'd also give us the miracle of ears that are able to receive it. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. We thank you, Lord, that your word does not return empty and that it always accomplishes exactly what it is sent out to do. So we are looking forward to hearing from you this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, not chapter 13. I wanted to read that just as a... As, it, as an introduction and as something that addresses a similar theme, but we will be in chapter 8. Last time we didn't quite finish off chapter 7, uh, and yet what was left at the end there was very much a repetition of what Paul had already taught. It's just kind of a, a re- recap of his teaching about uh, betrothed people and virgins marrying and so forth. So, I know that you're quite competent to study that on your own, and if you have any questions about it, come talk to me later. I just am very anxious to move on to the next chapter. I think it's uh, very relevant to us as well. But for us to really appreciate what is at stake here in chapter 8, we need to have some background. We need to understand some of the dynamic of what was going on in the early church, especially in Gentile cities and especially in Corinth, which was a very idolatrous city. And for the background, we need to look at Acts chapter 15. And if you remember our series in Acts, there was something very significant that happened in chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas had been on a missionary journey and they had gone to a number of uh, Gentile cities. Peter had also had a vision of a sheep descending with unclean animals, and the Lord told him to kill and eat, and Peter didn't want to, and then the Lord says, what's that? <laughs> and the Lord said to, uh, to Peter, um, what, what, I have de- what I have, don't declare unclean, what I have declared clean, or something to that effect anyways. But there was an opening up of the gospel going to the Gentiles. And Paul and, Paul and Barnabas now went to many different cities and people believed and they received the Holy Spirit. And this was something that came as a, quite a surprise to many of the Jews. 
what's going on here? I thought the, the gospel was for the Jews, and I thought Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews. But when Gentiles began to believe and receive the same Holy Spirit, and when Pete, Paul and Silas came to testify before these men at Jerusalem, everybody was really excited about it. And Peter said, well, if these men are becoming believers, and if they are receiving the Holy Spirit, should we impose upon them the same laws that we as a Jewish people have struggled to keep and that are too heavy for us to bear? Are we going to lay these burdens upon the Gentiles? And if their collective answer was no, but we're going to make some recommendations to the Gentiles under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in, in uh, harmony as elders and as apostles as to what behaviors ought to be avoided in order to facilitate peace and prevent conflict as these, the Jews and Gentiles come together in one body. So the specific churches that they addressed uh, were, were in the following cities, in Antioch and, actually, Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. So there, this letter was only addressed to these three churches. I think it was somewhat of a, a provisional letter, not necessarily something that was intended to have authority for all time because it had a very specific audience. But what I'm getting to here is found in verses 28 and 29. It says here, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and us as the elders and the apostles that have gathered in Jerusalem, to lay on you no greater burden then these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, that is eating blood, and from eating flesh that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. These four things would have been especially offensive to Jews. Um, and even though under the... Uh, under the law, or under the new law, under the covenant of grace, these things would not have, except for sexual immorality, would, would not have been explicitly forbidden um, to facilitate peace and to build up this new body that was coming together. They were to abstain from these things. By the way, the sexual immorality that is spoken of here probably refers to uh, the amount of separation uh, of relations in, in marriage. You know, there had to, you had to be at least a second cousin or a third cousin or something like that. That is likely what is being referred to here. The Gentiles were being asked to have a, a more vigilant observance of things that would be considered immoral to the Jews. All right, now all that is just background, but I wanted to read that because... One of the items in this list, that is the eating of food sacrificed to idols, was very, uh, really a big problem in Corinth because almost any meat you bought in the market had been sacrificed to idols. Now, it was definitely the cheapest meat. Part of the meat would be burnt in a sacrifice and part of it would be given to the priesthood in the whatever goddess or god's temple that you were in, and then the rest would be, you, get, would be sold to the public at a reduced rate. So, the question then that the Corinthians addressed to Paul was, 
what do we do about meat offered to idols? We know that in those temples, nothing good goes on there. It's chaotic. There's prostitution associated with it. And when we sacrifice to those idols, weird things happen. People get demonically possessed. There's some awful things going on in those temple, temples. Uh, should we have anything to do with that meat? If we're eating that meat sacrificed to idols, are we sinning? Now, we don't have that letter that they wrote to Paul, but because of the way Paul answers, we know that this was kind of what was in the Corinthians' minds. Well, let's go now to our chapter, chapter 8, and let's read about this crisis. Um, just before we read, I want to let you know that chapter 8 only begins to deal with this. It is a, an issue that is in the background in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And Paul uses a number of examples uh, to uh, explain his, his teaching in chapter 8, and he has a specific application in chapter 10. And it, it seems like it moves around a lot to various themes, but all three of these chapters deal with a concept that we would call Christian liberty. What are we permitted to do as Christians how do we define the limits of our liberty? Should we put any liber limits on our liberty? Or should we say, as was popular in Corinth, all things are lawful to me? Or, as Paul uh, sums up the reasoning of the argument against, against his gospel in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If, if everything is under grace, really, is there anything we can't do? So, that's kind of what's all in the background here. Now let's read uh, chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom, all thi for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things through whom are all things, and through him we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will 
never eat meat, lest, my, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, last week I said some of the things that we discussed were first century problems. But the answers that Paul gives and the wisdom that Paul provides in his answers to these questions have 21st century relevance. Even though this is one issue that we really don't struggle with in our culture at all, eating food offered to idols, we really need to address the matter of Christian liberty. What is permissible? What are the factors as we make decisions about things that really, as far as biblical mandate, there's, there's neither a do nor a don't. It's kind of a gray area. What do we do about those things? There's a, there's a word that is used to describe those things. It's a Greek word, and it's called adiophora. And it is used in, uh, in theological discourse. I do not believe it actually occurs in Scripture. Uh, and I take a, a bit of exception to the use of that word because it is, uh, it, is a, a it is used mostly in philosophy. It came through the Stoics. They were the ones who, who used this word a lot. And it means matters of indifference, things that don't really matter. And I would argue that the things that don't really matter, but that can cause divisions among brothers, and that can cause pain and strife in the body of Christ, those are not matters of indifference. They're really important. And though the, the, uh, the way that we respond to those things is not uniform, there are factors that we need to consider on whether it is appropriate to engage in a specific action in the midst of certain people. Because if you look through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, and especially these, la these uh, three chapters we're going to look at, the theme of building up is very, very strong. In fact, that is one of the major themes running through the whole book, that we are to build up the body of Christ and not to be focused on ourselves. So if we're doing things that are only self-edifying, or if we are doing things that make ourselves, that give ourselves pleasure, but uh, bring all kinds of grief to others, then we are actually sinning when we do those things. So they are not matters of indifference. They are matters where we need to apply wisdom, we need to look at our context, and God's Word gives us very clear instruction as to how to handle these. And if you'd like, you can look at eating meat offered to idols. That is one example, but you can, you can fill in that specific um, circumstance. You can put many circumstances into there. There are things that Christians have fought over that we don't fight over anymore. Uh, playing cards. Anybody have a problem playing cards? Probably nobody. We probably all have a deck or two at home. Well, my grandparents and my parents, they never taught us to play cards. When I got to university, and when I had to do probability and math, and they, they, all the problems had to do with, with cards, and I, I had no clue how any of this worked. Um, but there's an, there are historic associations with playing cards, and a lot of people, if going through the, the Puritans and onward, they said, that's a worldly thing. We don't want anything to do with it. Dancing. There's a whole, a whole swath of Christianity that is uh, 
morally opposed to dancing. I think there was a movie made in the in the 80s called Flashdance about a about a a, a Christian uh, Christian girl that uh, wasn't allowed to dance in the and a boy that uh, kind of corrupted her and made her dance or something like that. Well, you know, we know that moving your body to music, there's nothing wrong with it, and people did it in Scripture. They praised the Lord with the dance. And yet, in certain circumstances, these things can be objectionable. Um, smoking, drinking, Christians have had varying opinions on these things through the years. Uh, smoking, the Bible says absolutely nothing about it. Drinking, the Bible says a lot about it. And it, uh, most of it is cautionary. However, there are positive references as well. And so in our last uh, church context, when, before we were in this building, one of our major issues was within our constitution or within our, uh, our bylaws, there was a section about abstinence from alcohol. And it said that our church took us uh, an absolute stance or a, a stance of complete abstinence against alcohol. And while we could certainly see the reason for that and the practicality of it, we could not see the scriptural mandate for it. Because Jesus and the apostles drank wine, um, there was, there, was, there was never a prohibition. There, was, there were many cautions. And it was put in this area as a matter of conscience. Now, I can understand if you want to protect your body, if you want to protect your congregation, it would be very convenient just for us to be of one mind and say, well, we're not going to drink. I don't even think there's anything wrong with that if there's agreement. But you you had better not appeal to Scripture and say that Scripture says that it is sinful to drink alcohol because it doesn't. It doesn't say that. So I hope I have not offended anyone with that, but that's just to give you an idea of some of the other issues that are addressed by the same reasoning and the same teaching that Paul lays out for us here. Okay, now I've entitled this message, Are You a Puffer-Upper or a Builder-Upper? And... That's a, it's a very good title. It's right from the text. Uh, so let's jump right in. There are five points that I want to bring out here concerning this matter of um, those who know and have knowledge that it is okay to do something, and yet doing that thing is causing trouble and strife and sin among their brothers. So first, let's, see, let's note here in verse 1, verses 1 and 2, that arrogant knowledge is the opposite of love. And I don't mean that, that knowledge and love are, are two mutually exclusive things and they never meet. But knowledge that is held in arrogance actually works against and wars against love. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 13. We talked about all these things. If I know all things and understand all mysteries but I have not love, then I'm nothing. And if, if uh, you know, if you're, there are th three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. It talks about things like prophecy, ceasing, tongues, ceasing, prophecy and tongues 
are both gifts which brought knowledge to the church. And then a, spe- a specific gift called knowledge. Paul says all things are going, going to cease. All of those are going to cease. But the things that remain are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. There are churches that make a mistake and they, they see all of Scripture through the lens of love. And love becomes their hermeneutic. And, and love then becomes defined not in God terms, but in human terms, because love means never offending a person or, or never hurting a person's feelings. And the, the justice of God kind of gets shoved aside a little bit, or the, the holiness of God. So we need to remember all of these things, but folks, as people who are wanting to be biblical, uh, we need to make sure that love is paramount as we consider how we ought to be living our lives and how we ought to be dispensing knowledge amongst one another. So, arrogant knowledge opposes love, or is the opposite of love. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess, excuse me, all of us possess knowledge. And that is in quotations. They are probably not there in the original text, but this is likely coming from the letter. All of us possess knowledge. Paul, we all know that. And they lay out the things they know, and they're making their case for eating meat offered to idols. It says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, Love builds up. Now, knowledge doesn't have to puff up, but it's the attitude with which we carry that knowledge. It's the attitude we have as we gain that knowledge. It's the attitude that we have as we dispense that knowledge amongst people who don't yet have that knowledge. It goes on. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And we're talking about spiritual things. If, if you think that you have somehow got the holiness of God or the, any attribute of God or any specific doctrine, that you have absorbed that and understood that to the point where you are the authority on it, you don't know anything. Because what's missing is, is love. Love and knowledge are actually inseparable. And the only true knowledge, the knowledge that is useful and is pleasing to God, and the knowledge that actually has the function of building up, is knowledge that is um, gathered and dispensed in love. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. The same word, no is used all the way through that paragraph there. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And the reflexive is also true. We come to know God through love. It is a, it is a, a mutual exchange. God gives us knowledge as we love him. We come to know God through our, our love for him. And of course, it's not only love for God, but love for our brothers. Now, this matter of puffing up, we've addressed it before because it came up in chapter, uh, chapter 
uh, 4. And Paul says, I've written these things to myself. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Remember, the Corinthians were fighting over we're of Apollos, we're of Paul, we like the way Apollos teaches, we like the way Paul teaches, we like the way Peter teaches. So Paul's saying, I'm applying these things that I've said to us, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. You see, there is, there is, a, there is a check. There's a check to the knowledge that gets dispensed and toward the, the pride that comes with that knowledge. We've got to go back. We've got to be biblical about this. We've got to see what is written in the Old Testament and how these things fulfill it. And that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Puffed up is arrogance, okay? When people get into camps, they become arrogant about defending the person that they have attached themselves to. You, you see this blind loyalty in politics. You see it in cults. You see it in churches. You see it when uh, a famous Christian leader makes a very, uh, a very silly and very uh, destructive statement or even a heretical statement. And people defend that and they gloss over it. So I'm just going to give you a couple of instances of how puffing up or how knowledge puffs up. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7, it's talking about the qualifications of elders. An elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Uh, a recent convert very quickly, I think, reaches the adolescent phase where they think they know everything. And they're soaking up the scripture and they're, they're, uh, they're just absorbing everything. Uh, probably in that early stage, they're, you know, they're reading books on eschatology or something and they're, they're hitting all the hot topics. Maybe somewhere along the line, they'll come across the doctrines of grace or the, the, or the five solas or something like that. And they begin to absorb those things and they begin to look down at other people. And and they begin to think of themselves as authorities on that subject. And of course, the warning here is that they, they can fall into the condemnation of the devil. The devil was puffed up too. He said, I will exalt myself. I will be like the Most High. I will exalt myself above the stars of God. And, if, and God says, you're going to be brought down to the sides of the pit. Then in 1 Timothy 6, Verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So you get this. This is a matter of doctrine. If he has a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, if he's going beyond Scripture, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an, an unhealthy, unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Theologically minded people need to be very, very careful about this. Quarrels about words. Uh, because we can very easily be puffed up in conceit and sometimes we get so addicted to our pattern of thinking that we neglect to 
see that this does square with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We become addicted to, to systems of thought and then we quarrel about words and this produces envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So that's, that's puffing up. Knowledge puffs up. Doesn't mean don't learn. It doesn't mean that knowledge is useless. If we don't have knowledge, we don't have doctrine, and if we don't have doctrine, we don't have the gospel. But it is how we hold and dispense that knowledge, how we use that knowledge, the attitude with which we carry the, the blessing of that knowledge, that, in its, that can actually turn sinful in a hurry if we're not careful. Now, we're going to go into what the Corinthians actually know. And I've put this under the category of academic knowledge. We've talked about arrogant knowledge, and that's opposed to love. Academic knowledge is clear and accessible. You know, you could talk to many people who could tell you the mechanics of the gospel. They could recite for you the whole plan of salvation and redemption. Uh, those people would not necessarily be saved. Okay, they've got, they've got the intellectual grasp of it, and perhaps there's even some, some agreement, but there is not faith, there is not trust in that gospel. But, so Paul says, under this category of academic knowledge, or knowledge that is available through simple study, Therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that, we know at least three things. Number one, an idol has no real existence. An idol is just a slab of stone or a piece of wood. And there is no life in that idol. There is nothing, um, nothing to be honored or worshipped to that, in that idol. And that temple is just a, you know, it's just a garage for a statue. That's all it is. There's nothing godly or, or there's nothing... Um, worthy to be worshipped in there. Second, we know that there is no God but one. Hear, O Israel, this is the Shema. The Lord our God is one God. Every Jewish person knew this, and, and every Gentile who had anything to do with Jews knew that the Jews were monotheists and that there was one God. For our, although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, in quotation marks, and many lords. So Paul is not saying here that there are no spiritual entities besides God. He talks in Ephesians chapter 6 about principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in heavenly realms. He talks later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he says those who worship idols or who sacrifice to idols are actually sacrificing to demons. So the idol is nothing. There are entities out there, but they're not God. And there's only one God. All of these entities, good and bad, angels, demons, whatever, they are subject to God. There is, there is no God but one. And who is that God? Well, Scripture reveals that clearly as well. Um, yet, the third point here, in this uh, 
sort of academic summary of knowledge. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all, from, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So that, that is right in keeping with Jewish orthodoxy right up to that point. And then there is the revelation that came through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who declared the Father whom nobody has ever seen. And that is this, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So there is, there is a unity between the Father and the Son. They, they are one essence. They are both the source of all things. We exist for the Father and the Son. They are one in that, and yet there is a, a separation in their personhood. There is the Father and the Son, and of course there is the Holy Spirit. All right, so these are things, these are basic things. And I think every Christian... Every believer knows these things in their head, yet not every believer grasps the full implications of this knowledge. Every believer believes there's one God and we only worship God. But because there are other forces, other um, rulers of wickedness that people worship, and because... In the, new, the first century, especially, they saw demonic stuff happening all over the place. There was somewhat of an unhealthy fear and a concern that these other entities could still have influence and power. So it, was, it wasn't an easy transition out of paganism into Christianity, where we know that Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. They had to be reminded of that constantly. And so there are people who have absence of knowledge. They, they, they lack knowledge. So the third point here is that absence of knowledge may make the conscience vulnerable, and it often does. When you don't fully understand the absolute authority of Christ over that, that everything, every rule, every authority, every demon, every, every power is under his feet and he is in, in control. When you don't understand that and you have opportunity to participate in something that takes you back to your pagan days when you were caught in that trap of idolatry, you're going to have a crisis of conscience if you indulge in that. You're going to be sinning against your own conscience. Now, you might not be breaking any law, but in your heart, you are actually eating, you're eating something that in your mind you have not resolved that there is, you haven't come to the conclusion that that God is irrelevant. There's still a sense that there's a participation in something that is evil and that is sinful. Now, if you were utterly convinced that that God is, he doesn't matter, um, you could walk right in there and in good conscience and eat and you wouldn't sin. But if you're convicted about that in your heart, this is how Gentiles know that they've sinned. They've all got a conscience. They don't have to know that they're breaking the Ten Commandments to know that they've sinned. They're violating their conscience. So not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, 
eat food as really offered to an idol. What I believe that means is they, they understand that that idol is, is itself, they know it's just a piece of stone, but they know that the people who are worshiping that idol are actually worshiping a demonic spirit. And when they do that, their conscience is defiled. If they go in, if they, if they eat when they know, and their conscience is telling them that it's wrong. So all of these things that we're talking about, they're matters of conscience. And there are some people who are going to be conscience-stricken about taking a drink of alcohol. There are some people who are going to be conscience-stricken about getting a tattoo, about smoking a cigar. I mean, we can, we can make many positive and even biblical reasons for not doing those things. But under the, under the new covenant, there's no ex- explicit prohibition. But we need to apply wisdom. You can apply, for example, with, with smoking. If your body is indeed the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to do things that are going to destroy it, right? All right. Now we come, we're getting to the point where, where the rubber really does meet the road right where we are. And that is number four. I was going to say application of knowledge is a stumbling block to the weak, but really it's misapplication. When we apply knowledge correctly, it is helpful to everyone. But when we misapply it, and when we take liberties in our knowledge, we can really hurt people who don't have knowledge and who have weak consciences. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. In other words, eating any kind of food, if it's blessed or not blessed or whatever, that it has no merit or demerit with God. We're no worse if we will not. We do not eat and no better off if we do. It's protein and carbohydrates. As far as, as, far as any moral value in foods, we don't even have kosher and not kosher anymore. Those things are all, they don't matter. Okay, they don't matter to God. There's no merit uh, in eating one kind of diet over another diet. You know, if you call it the hallelujah diet or whatever, you can spiritualize it however you want. It doesn't gain you any brownie points with God. Now, if you're a glutton, you're sinning. <laughs> okay, for if anyone sees... Oh, oh uh, continuing here. But take care that this right of yours, NASB says this, or NASB says this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I know that I'm free to do this, but what about the people who observe me? What about the people who are eating at this table with me? What about my neighbor across the street who is a brand new Christian? who's been raised perhaps in, in, a, in a very legalistic setting. What are they going to think if they, they see me and, and uh, my friends out on the patio um, drinking, maybe telling jokes that would be uh, considered off-color or, or rude or, or have some sort of um, 
barb to them. Let's continue. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, by your, and this is the misapplication of this knowledge, by you doing what you know you can do because your conscience permits you to do it, this weak person is destroyed. Now, it doesn't say he's sent to hell. But you're crushing that person. You're causing him, or tempting him and encouraging him through your actions to do something that he is he knows is wrong in his heart. He knows that that is a hook. He knows that if he takes that drink, he'll take another one. He knows that if he listens to that music, it'll take him right back to the time where he partied to that music. We have to be careful and sensitive to the brothers and sisters that are around us. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So, you might have been wondering up to this point, are we, are we talking about a person who's a Christian, or is this about non-Christians? It's definitely about a Christian. It's a brother for whom Christ died. It is one who is under the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It is one who is given by the Father to the Son. But you're, you're putting them in a place where, where they are going to deal with guilt, they're going to deal with the accuser of the brethren, they're going to deal with the accus- accusation of their own con- conscience, and God will be gracious to them, but you're presenting a, a real hurdle for them. You're actually causing them to stumble in their walk. Now I know I'm going to use three examples here of people who have been caused to stumble by Christians who are using their liberty, taking advantage of their liberty. One was a former pastor of mine from Portage La Prairie. Um, His father was quite a, a hero almost in the Christian Missionary Alliance movement. And this man, he grew up in the church and he rebelled as a youth, came back to the Lord later on. But you know what the catalyst was for his rebellion? He was delivering papers one day, and um, he came by the house of one of the elders in that Alliance church. And of course, if you know anything about the Alliance, uh, they've got a very strict moral code. Um, you know, you don't, they've got a lot of things that a spirit-filled person is not to do. One of them is smoke. So this elder was puffing on a big stogie when he walked by his house. And because, because of that man's liberty, now maybe he was doing that and didn't expect to see him or whatever, but I, I just want to give you that example. When a person who has a sensitized conscience or is in a place of vulnerability, when they look and they see a Christian doing something that in their mind is inappropriate for a Christian... It creates a crisis for them. And in this case, it was a catalyst for years of rebellion. Um, another uh, a pastor that I, I worked with in Dalmany, Saskatchewan, uh, 
his son went away to uh, a Bible college. It was one of these one-year kind of intensive discipleship schools. He had a great time there, learned a lot about the scripture, but was invited to the home of the, um, the founder, actually, of the whole Bible college movement. You'd recognize the name of that movement if I, if I, if I gave it to you. But he went into this man's uh, living room and it was a thrill for him to visit in, in the home of someone he looked up to so much. And lo and behold, there right in front of the sofa is a, is a well-stocked liquor cabinet. Now this young man was raised as a, as a very conservative Mennonite. Um, and I know some, some Mennonites don't oppose uh, drinking alcohol, but his particular branch did. And, you know, it's not just Mennonites, there are a lot who, they've never had alcohol in their home. So now he goes into this home of this leader and is right there in front of him, and it creates a crisis for him. Now there's, there's another case here. A um, Bible school teacher of mine, he was uh, being witnessed to by, by some zealous Christians. He was a young school teacher. I think he was only 19 years old when he started teaching school, barely older than, uh, than his students. And he went to this social gathering, and there was some dancing there. And lo and behold, the Christians who were witnessing to him were you know, doing the twist or whatever they did in those days. And, and he was literally floored by that, that this, this uh, Christian, and there was a sort of a community understanding of what a Christian does and what a Christian looks like, was breaking out of that mold. Now, I'm not saying here we all not, all ought to be prudish and, um, and legalistic, and never have any fun. But it does kind of fit with this example of these people who have weak or vulnerable consciences because of lack of knowledge and lack of the liberty hasn't been embraced, the whole understanding of being free in Christ. What we do in front of them, what we do in, in public, even bringing our people into our homes and and having something on display there that will cause them to stumble, it's a dangerous thing. And we're about to find out how dangerous. So far, we've only talked about the person whose conscience is violated when he, or when, when he goes against his conscience, he's destroyed. It's a crisis for him. But what about the person who acts this way in front of them? Or who does this behavior that is objectionable in the, in the young Christian's eyes. Well, number five here, application of love is a safeguard against sin. So now we really, we, we talk about sin. 12, verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. Remember, you didn't do anything that was sinful in itself but you did it with the knowledge that your brother was there. You did it with the knowledge that he would be offended by what, and maybe you even didn't even know that, but when he stumbles, guess what? 
You're responsible. You have sinned against him. And when you try to justify your behavior, a question we need to ask ourselves is, did my behavior, which I have justified in my own mind and which I can find a, I find no script, scriptural mandate not to do it, in my behavior, did I cause my brother to stumble? Or before you decide to do something, before you decide, you know, to to get that tattoo of a skull or whatever you want to do. How is this going to affect the brothers that are around me? So you've wounded their conscience. You've sinned against them. Not only that, you sin against Christ. You see, it's not a matter of indifference. In the body, we need to consider each other. And look at what Paul's response is here, and he's modeling this. Remember, Paul is a guy who says, whatever you see me in me, do. You know, Jesus, Jesus said, to the Pharisees, said to the people who, who were under the, the authority of the Pharisees, he said, do what they say. Don't do what they do, because they preach but do not practice. Here is Paul, a former Pharisee, who is no longer under that legal code and, and no longer in his own righteousness. He's saying... Do what I do, and this, this is what I resolve to do. If food makes my brother stumble, in this context, food offered to idols, I will never eat meat. I will never eat that food that has that association with idols. Even though I know it's perfectly fine and it's just protein, I'm not going to eat it. And probably the case is here, I'm not going to eat it in any context where I know that it will offend my brothers, right? Lest I make my brother stumble. So this is a matter of living out the gospel in the body. It's a matter of esteeming others better than ourselves. It's a matter of laying down our own interests so that we can build up rather than puff up. It's really easy to get puffed up. And the puffing up usually is in, it's in the head of the, pe the person who thinks he's in the right. So you can read and you can gorge on all sorts of good theological material. And, and you can work out your code of conduct based on that. But even though you may justify through knowledge, and even though you may be utterly confident that you're without sin in a certain behavior, there's no real substance there if you haven't processed it down through love. Has anyone ever arrived at a certain understanding of the Christian faith where you, you kind of suddenly dawns on you and you just say, why doesn't everybody else get this? Why can't everyone... I, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell them what I've just learned, and I expect them just immediately to embrace that. And when they don't, you can become a little bit harsh with them, a little bit impatient with them. And you can become puffed up. And what's happening then? You're not building them up anymore. You're, you're not building them up. You're not helping them. 
Now, if what, what you've just learned, if it is true and if it is godly, there's a way to do this. It's called patience and love, taking them aside, understanding that they can, that it took you how many years to get to this point? It's going to take them a while. Lead them along gently. Build one another up. A building, you know, it, it, a building that goes up in one day, unless it's built by the Amish or the Jehovah's Witnesses, probably isn't going to stand very long. <laughs> you know, these, you don't, when you build a church, you, you don't want a blow-up church, right? There's no substance to it. We want, we want to build a building, not a bubble. So, what we are seeing here is that the gospel, as it changes our hearts, it really does affect how we live. And in the body of Christ, as when we deal with one another every day, when we have interaction with people who come into our midst um, and we don't know where they've come from, it's important to get to know them. It's important to listen to them, to hear their stories, to know the things that would cause them to stumble, and to do things that build them up, and not to be puffed up in our knowledge, not to be assuming that just because we have resolved in our mind a certain course of action that we have absolute freedom to do that. There is, there is the risk of causing a brother to sin, of sinning ourselves against them and against Christ. Now, just to end on a gospel note, I want to take you to the end of Paul's argument, and this is actually in chapter 10. And you'll see that this has very strong gospel implications. At the center of Paul's motivation always is the gospel, is the good news that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. That Christ gives us life when we believe on His name. Christ lifts, up, lifts us up out of our pointless pursuit of our own righteousness and gives us a righteousness that is of God. Listen to this argument at the end here in uh, chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Have you heard that before? Chapter 6? He's repeating it again. All things are lawful, but not things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So that is being helpful. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, if someone serves you and they're serving it to you in good conscience, go ahead and eat it. It's not going to kill you. Uh, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, so now it's in the context of an unbeliever, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and the sake of conscience. So in, the, in that case, it's an unbeliever. They, to them, that is something that really means they're actually, they actually believe it's been given to their God. So for you to eat that as a Christian, 
would be, they would think that you were entering into their mode of worship. And remember it said unbelievers here. So if an unbeliever invites you to the house. Okay, now verse 29. I do not, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why would, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? Here's the punchline. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And here's the key. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So Jews, Greeks, we're talking potentially outsiders, possibly believers, but then he says, or to the church of God, which now includes Jews and Greeks. People are watching. One commentary on the book of Corinthians is called Life in a Fishbowl. People are watching. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we've got some very good practical teaching. I know people are all over the place in how they apply these. Let's, uh, let's be careful not to judge one another and, and, uh, and become puffed up in knowledge. One more thing, just before we close. There's another way to look at this. Paul wrote this to the whole Corinthian church. And he's writing it to the weak brothers as well as those who have knowledge. The weak brothers are reading this. In time, these weak brothers are going to have to understand um, an idol really is nothing. So it's written for their exhortation too. So there's a coming together over these things. There's a mutual respect for one another. And that's how we maintain unity in the body of Christ. We're willing to lay aside our own interests for the sake of others. Paul goes so far as to say, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to the Greek I became as a Greek, to the weak I became as a weak, to the strong I, be I became as a strong. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. That's regarding salvation, but the same principle applies in the body. We are to be um, recognizing each other's uh, state as far as our knowledge. Let's pray as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you um, just for the, the wisdom of your word. Um, though this is one situation that is far removed from us, we have trouble relating to idols and sacrifice and all that stuff. It is so relevant because it, it touches on many aspects of our lives. Father, we want to live as free people, as free men and women in Christ. We do not want to be falsely accused of and condemned over things that are not even offensive in your sight, but we recognize, Lord, that we are ambassadors to the world with the gospel. We are also the body of Christ to one another. And your goal is that we would build one another up, that the body would be built up. So help us toward that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.